Romans chapter 16. Getting to the close of the book here. I believe next week will be our last uh, week in the book. We'll look at the uh, what I'm going to call the doxology next week. But um, Paul ends the book of uh, Romans much like he does many of his letters, which is with personal greetings to individual believers within the church. And um, we're going to kind of look at that today. And I kind of shared this last week as we were looking at um, sort of reflections on Paul's ministry. Last week, Paul had kind of told the uh, Romans his plans of you know wanting to come and visit them in Rome as he was on his way to Spain and. Um, there's no direct imperatives in the text, so you have to sort of look for principles or observations or things that you can see in the text. Um, because again, there's no direct commands or instructions found in them. Most New Testament letters, you have your theology in the beginning, and then you get instruction telling you what to do. And then the question is, what do you do when you get to the end, where there's just some personal comments and stuff like that? And to be real frank, oftentimes I find myself just wanting to sort of rush through that. But we have to slow down because we're told that all Scripture is given for our benefit, isn't it? Which would include even these greetings at the end. And so it's a little interesting to look at them and to ask, what might God have us to learn from things like this, these greetings? Especially something like the book of Romans, because Paul spends the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 16 greeting people. A bunch of names. He then... um, goes on to the the end and sort of mentions a couple other names um, of people that are with him, but he mentions 24 different individuals in our text today. So we're going to spend the next three hours going over every name and um, seeing what we can call and learn from them. So, no, we won't. But we're going to look at these names. Um, There's some interesting things that happen within the text. Um, In the first 16 verses, he sends these personal greetings out. Um, In verses 21 through 23, he sends greetings to the Romans from eight of his traveling companions. Um, He includes a warning in verses 17 through 20. So we're going to look at those things today. I want to make some observations, basically some simple observations from some of these things. The first observation is this, that the believers in the early church found fellowship and they worshipped in these small, local, somewhat autonomous local bodies. And I think it's kind of important for us um, as we look at that. Let's go ahead and look at, um, I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll read through chapter 16 and then we'll kind of come back and, and, and parse it, if you will. But again, it's primarily a list of names, so let's just work through these. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Caesarea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matters she has or may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. I'm going to slaughter these names as we go through this, by the way. Um, let's see here. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stichus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those in the household of Narcissus. Is that right? Nar- sounds like Narcissist. Narcissus. 
Uh, what verse are we on there? What's that? Verse 12. Greet Trepanea and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, or, um, Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Esachristus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lysias and Jason and Sopater and, his, or and my kinsman, or Sopater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Quite a tongue twister working through all the names. So what do we learn from all this? Well, the first thing I mentioned, the first observation is that believers in the early church, people like Paul had mentioned here, actually found their fellowship in these small, local, somewhat autonomous um, bodies. And I think that's important for us. Early Christians did not have access to large, dedicated church buildings. When you think about it, in most of the world today, except for places like North Korea and China where they have to meet in underground bodies and whatnot, most places in the world when we think of church, we think of what? Buildings, um, street corners. In fact, um, you know, driving around, it's interesting. Um, you see, you know, we were driving out to the, the Dietrichs last night. I don't know how many little churches we passed along the way. You know, that's how we identify churches. Well, that's a church, and that's a church, and that's a church. But that was fairly unknown in the first 300 years of the church because they met primarily in people's homes. Now, initially, the Jewish Christians, were told in Acts chapter 2, met in the temple. James, as he, it's a very early letter, when he wrote to his readers, which are primarily Jewish, he describes a situation where people are coming in and sitting in what almost looks like maybe one of the synagogues. And so very early in the church, at probably the first couple of years, they attempted to meet in the temple and in the synagogues because most of the converts were Jewish. And that would kind of make sense. But then as the church began to grow and you have Gentiles coming to the church, they didn't have dedicated church buildings. In fact, they were kicked out of the temples and the synagogues. And so they had to find a way to meet. And so they primarily met in people's homes. Now, when we think of that, we think of you know a place like ours, a small home. You might have you know ten people in the family room, and you're packed to the gills. Well, when it came to the early Christians, they probably met in more prominent homes, if you will. Um, he mentions a couple of people here. If you look, he says uh, Priscilla and Aquila in verse five. He says, "Also greet the church that is in your house." Now, he mentions three house churches, if you will, in this text. There's probably more, but he mentions three of them. One of them was in Priscilla and Aquila's house. He also says in verse 10, he mentions the four or five individuals there, then he says, the brethren with them, that's a reference likely to a church that had come together as a group within that group of believers. 
He also mentions in verse 15 um, another four individuals. And he says, and all the saints who are with them. And so these comments about those who are with them um, are likely referring to these small local bodies within Rome. And so there were you know, groups of Christians here and there and there. And they actually probably met in people's homes. Now, most homes in that day were fairly small, as you can imagine. So they probably met in the more prominent places. Now, archaeology tells us that some of these homes in and around Rome um, had these large porticos or, or entranceways or whatnot that could probably seat 70 to 80 people. And it's suspected that that's probably where they met. Places like that. Um, a couple of people. Paul mentions this Gaius down in verse uh, 23. Notice that he says he was host to me and to the whole church. He's also probably the one that the uh, letter of 3 John is written to. Um, The whole letter, if you read through that, is almost... He doesn't come right out and say it, but you get the sense or the feel that Gaius was responsible or a shepherd of sorts over probably a body. And likely, probably a body that met within his his house. Um, Philemon, we're also told in Philemon 1-2 that he hosted a house in his, or a church in his home. You remember who Philemon was? He, Paul had written a complete letter to him. He was a fairly wealthy man who owned a slave who would run away on Nesimus, and he sends, an, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. Well, in that letter, he mentions to, about the, the home church, the church that Philemon hosted within his own house. Paul also mentions another woman um, called Nympha in Colossus. Chapter 4, verse 15, she actually hosted somebody, a church as well, in her house. Um, Priscilla and Aquila are also mentioned here by Paul. The interesting thing about Priscilla and Aquila, do you remember what they did for a living? Anybody? Because they did the same thing Paul did. What was that? Yeah, tent making. And actually, tent making was a fairly lucrative business in the first century, which probably explains why Paul was able to um, make tents part-time and, as he says, supply not only his needs, but for the needs of all his men, people that traveled with him. And so Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers, um, likely fairly prominent. You get that impression in the scriptures, too. Um, and they hosted somebody in their house. So in all likelihood, some of these people that we've mentioned here had fairly, they were probably people of means within the Christian community, and they had given up their homes for these small local church families to be able to meet. Now what's interesting is that appeared to be the practice for probably the first 300 years of the church. From an archaeological standpoint, um, we don't find church buildings until after 300 AD. Anybody know why that is? Why we all of a sudden see church buildings start to pop up after 300 AD. There was something that happened um, in uh, about uh, mid, uh, 313, 315, somewhere in there, and a famous emperor. Anybody remember who this emperor was? Ruled Rome in the 300s. He made a declaration. Anybody know what that is? Some of you homeschool kids might know that. Because I don't know that they'd study this. Well, even the Christian school, maybe. Public school wouldn't. Anybody know the name Constantine? Constantine was a Roman emperor, and he signed an edict called the Edict of Milan in AD 13, or 313. And what that did was that prohibited the persecution of Christians. It outlawed persecuting Christians. And actually established in Rome for the first time genuine freedom of religion. 
Now, Constantine likely was not a Christian at this point. There's some question whether or not Constantine ever really became a Christian. He did profess Christ, but he still practiced a lot of the pagan practices, so it's unclear. He did have kind of a deathbed confession where he was baptized and some other things, and so some believe that he was saved, some not. But when he signed the edict, he probably wasn't saved. He thought it would simply be good for Rome. Rome was starting to deteriorate. It was losing favor in the rest of the world, um, coming apart at the seams in some respects. And so Constantine thought that Christianity, this new religion that had exploded for the last couple hundred of years, um, would unify or be able to unify and give strength and power back to Rome. And so he signs this edict and basically um, prevents the persecution of Christians. But then he does something else. He begins to pour into the community a lot of funds to build churches for for these Christians to be able to meet in. So he began to fund the building of churches all throughout Rome. And so we have these now fully functioning churches, if you will, buildings being established in Rome, and that's where the Christians began to meet. But then he did something else. Anybody remember the, um, the first big council, if you will? Um, Roman council? The Council of Nicaea in 325, which was basically where... Constantine announced a gathering. He got together all of these Christian leaders from throughout Rome, brought them all together in the hopes of trying to unify the Christian church into one body, basically, under some form of central leadership, some kind of central direction. Again, because he thought that maybe by unifying all Christians and bringing them all together, that he might be able to unify and strengthen Rome. Anybody know what resulted in that council? What happened? Anybody know? There's a, there's a word, Catholic, okay, which means universal, but the Catholic Church ultimately came out of that. Now, it wasn't until about 300 years later where the first Pope was named, but that's really the beginnings of the Catholic Church. And for the next 1,200 years or so, that kind of dominated Christianity. Now, why is that important? Because what basically happened is you have, for the first 300 years of the Church, Christians meeting together in small local bodies, meeting in people's homes, no real formal or structured church per se. They had individuals that sort of um, led and directed. You had the apostles, you had Paul and others, and you did have what we might refer to as bishops, that would, you know, men or individuals that would rise up that had influence within those bodies, but they were still so, these small local bodies all over the place. It wasn't some centralized, unified, formal structure. Part of what happened then is they moved into these buildings and this formal structure was now you had formal worship and you end up developing what's what's referred to as the mass. And so you no longer had Christians necessarily as their primary form of worship, simply meeting in homes, singing together, studying together, eating meals together. The, the text says sometimes they met daily in the early church. But it, was, it sort of moved more towards some type of formalized religion and meeting in buildings and having a structured worship and a liturgy. And we all kind of know what happened. For 1,200 years, it just deadened the church in many respects. And it wasn't until the Reformation. But even with the Reformation, what happened is you now have all these other denominations popping up. They're doing all the, the same thing, aren't they? Got to have a building. Got to have a structure. Got to have a head. And it was just the same this different theology, if you will. And so we have this change that takes place about 300, and so you went from these small little church bodies to much more formalized. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, good or bad. It's just something that happened, but there's, there's an effect of that. There's some interesting stats that I came across. 
In the United States here, church attendance began to drop in the 60s and 70s. Up until then, church attendance had either stayed steady or continued to go up. But church attendance began to drop in the 60s and 70s. It kind of makes sense, the whole hippie era. But then for about 30 years, it stayed the same. Okay? But then, all of a sudden, about 15 years ago here, church attendance collapsed in the United States. In fact, the number of people going to church had dropped at a rate twice what happened in the 60s and 70s in the hippie era. Now, what's striking about that to me is, is in, believe me, it, I think it correlates. Do you remember what started happening about the late 80s? We began to see the rise of what we're going to call the megachurch in the United States. Now, megachurches have been around since the 1800s. But, in the 80s, there began to be this explosion in the United States of the megachurch. Megachurch meaning 5,000 people and above. Okay? And what's really interesting about that is in the last 15 years, the number of megachurches has not only doubled, it's gone up by five times. And what began to happen is small local bodies began to disappear, and people began to flock towards the megachurches um, for whatever reason. And again, I'm not saying good or bad, but isn't it kind of interesting that the megachurches had their biggest explosion over the last 15 years? But what else has happened in those same 15 years? Church attendance has literally collapsed in the United States. Now, again, I'm not saying you know, small churches are good, big churches are bad. That's not the point. But I'm wondering if there's a correlation because in Paul's day, these little tiny local um, gatherings of believers in people's homes where there was more intimacy and um, you understand each other and you see each other is, was very different then what happens today where we show up at 10 o'clock, we pop our heads in for an hour and a half on a church service, and then we go home for the rest of the week, which is fairly standard and typical of the American church. You know, how many big churches have we heard that talk about the need for small groups? Because they recognize those small groups are critical. And so again, I'm not saying big churches bad, small churches good. What I'm saying is there's a dynamic within that early church that allowed them to explode in growth and maturity and evangelism. And I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they were intimate with, with one another. They were getting together in these small groups and focusing on, on loving one another and, and learning and growing and worshiping and praying for one another and breaking bread together and sharing needs with one another. That's often lost when you come into a church family, you show up and do your, as we called it in the Catholic Church, doing your weekly obligation, you know. Um, now again, I, I don't know if you can you know, say that's the reason for all of that, but bigger is not always better. There's some consequences to that, and I think as we look at this early church, um, to think, wow, this, these sort of loosely knit autonomous churches, whether it be 15 people or 30 or 60, or maybe most of these homes could not seat in their entryway more than 70 or 80 people. So even the biggest small church, if you will, in Rome was probably fewer than 50, 60 people. And yet, think about what they did. I mean, they reached the world. Without a formalized, structured, you know, which today, that's how we do things. We have these structures, these ministries we put together to reach the world and, and all that. And again, not, I'm, I'm not saying good or bad, but something else has happened here at the same time. You look at Barna's research, and knowledge of the scriptures 
has gone down drastically within the Christian church in the last 20 years. They're calling this generation that we sort of live in now the dumbest generation, biblically speaking, in our history. wonder why that might be. Do you think there's a correlation there to what we see happening within the American church? Um, we don't always necessarily study together, learning together. You know, we get preached at. I, you know, I stand up here and I teach to you. I hope it comes across more as us learning and growing together. But oftentimes, in so many large churches, they're trying to reach the masses, and you lose a little bit of that intimacy of studying and being able to grow together. And so, anyway, it's just an observation I wanted to make that that early church, man, they thrived on these small local bodies. Now, fortunately, here in the United States, there's one other church, if you will, that's growing. And it's small churches now. For years, as the megachurches exploded, the small churches paid the price. In fact, not too many years ago here, there was, I think it was in the Christian po- uh, Christianity Today, I believe, um, some megachurch pastors that had claimed that any of these small churches, they're wasting their resources, they're wasting God's money by doing these small churches, that megachurches is where it's at. A lot of people have tired with the megachurch now. They're finding out that they're not getting fed, they're not getting what they need. Um, and so now you have these small, back Francis um, Chan, um, a mega church pastor left his church and is now doing home churches. Small little home churches because he finds them more effective at making disciples. Um, again, not making a statement good or bad, but it's just interesting now that um, mega churches are growing, but now small churches are growing. It's those middle sized churches, upwards around 500 people, that are shrinking now and disappearing, right in the middle. Many of the people have either gravitated towards the big mega church or these small local bodies. So, just food for thought, that the, that the Christian church thrived on that. So what do we do? Well, I think it's one reason why it's important for us, if we do choose to meet like this, that we do the things like the Saturday nights. I think that's critical for us. You know, um, We have some guys that meet on, on Tuesday morning for some Bible study. You know, I think those, those little tiny local bodies that we do are critical to us. That's the way that early church thrived. And we see that here with Paul. Like I said, he mentions these these individuals in these churches. Let's go on to another observation. A second observation is that these local churches were actually filled with believers who were dedicated to working hard. Um, I'll be real frank on this, and maybe it'll sound somewhat judgmental, but I think our churches today are filled with people that come in and sit on their hands. I love what happens here at Renew because I don't think we have a problem with that. Okay, I think if we were to grow, and we may have a problem with that because I think that's that that's just that's just Christianity's mindset today. You know, we're we're a consumer mentality, and so um, I think the old eighty twenty rule probably applies. That the average church probably eighty percent of the work gets done by twenty percent of the people. You know, we're all given gifts and abilities, and yet. We're so busy with all this stuff. We just can't do anything, you know. Um, I, I won't do it, but I, in my uh, in my head, I could I could start rattling off names of people I know whose involvement, literally with church, is they show up on Sunday morning. That's it. There's nothing else over the course of the week. Um, but look at the people that Paul mentions here. He mentions Phoebe in verses 1 and 2. Go ahead and look at that. Phoebe, verses 1 and 2, he says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Caesarea. He uses the word for deaconess there. 
Um, it can mean just a servant, but it's also used in the church, like we use here, as a formal position, if you will, of deacon or deaconess. It's, it literally means servant or worker. Um, we don't know exactly how Paul is using it here with her. He could have just meant, you know, hey, she's a servant. But it's probably more than that, because look at the way he describes her. He says, Receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. That word for helper there is the word for benefactor. It appears that Phoebe was a person of means, and used her means as a servant in the church, and held a fairly prominent position, if you will, to where Paul says, look, help her out, give her whatever she needs to do what she needs to do. And so Phoebe was a servant, a worker in the church, somebody who had dedicated themselves um, and their resources, if you will, to the church. Paul says to commend her, which basically means to approve her, to accept her. Um, He says that she was a helper of many here. Let's go on to the next one. Look at verse 3. He mentions Priscilla and Achilla. He says, Greet Priscilla and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. We first meet these two folks in Acts chapter 18 where we learn that they were originally from Italy, but they were kicked out of Rome when they kicked out all the Jews. Okay? They were tent makers like Paul. Do you remember in Acts chapter 18, in fact, uh, it says that they were the ones who helped Apollos understand more accurately the scriptures. Turn to Acts chapter 18 with me. Acts chapter 18, verses uh, 24 and following, says this. Now a Jew named Apollos was an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures, probably the Old Testament scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. So basically, he was sort of uh, understood John's teaching of Christ coming to make the way, etc., but he didn't fully understand, probably, um, the extent, all that the gospel involved. And so it says, But when Priscilla and Achilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And so we have this man, Apollos, who became a very prominent man within the church, a debater of the Jews, but because of the help that Priscilla and Achilla offered him. This is one of those great examples of how um, the student, if you will, in this case, gets more glory than the teachers, because they helped him, and he went on to become very prominent, and they just went about their business ministering to the church. So they were responsible for helping Apollos. Paul refers to him here as my fellow workers in Christ. I love the fact that he uses the word worker there. They ministered with Paul in Corinth. He then dropped them off at Ephesus. He left them in Ephesus, which means he could, have, he could trust them. So he left them at Ephesus when he went on to Antioch. 
And then he went back to Ephesus for three years and continued to minister alongside Aquila and Priscilla. Now what's interesting about that as well is there was this instance that ha- instant that happened well, this incident that happened in Ephesus where there's a riot, Paul likely could have lost his life, and he says that Priscilla and Achilla risked their own necks to save him. They put it all on the line. Dustin, you want to share your joke? <laughs> Dustin came up to me early and he said, Hey, how do we know that Priscilla was murdered? This is bad. This is bad. She was married to Achilla. <laughs> is that bad? <laughs> she was married to Achilla. Yeah. So we know Priscilla was murdered because she was married to Achilla. Now we don't know that Priscilla was murdered. So I think I almost ruined his joke because when he asked me that, I said we don't know that she was murdered. But he had to finish it anyway because it wouldn't have been funny otherwise, you know. So. But Paul refers to Priscilla and Achilla as dedicated workers of Christ, so much so that they risked their own lives to help Paul. And again, Paul says that they had a house, in verse 5, in their, or I'm sorry, a church in their house. Now, he goes into great detail on those two individuals, but he's going to mention 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. He's going to mention nine other individuals here using this word. He says in verse 6 that Mary was somebody who had worked hard for you. He says in verse 7 that Andronicus and Junius were those who were outstanding among the apostles. Apostles are workers there. He says in verse 9, Urbanus, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. He mentions Apelles in verse 10, greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. And it reminds me of when Paul says that Timothy needed to be a workman, approved. It's somebody who works Who's God? God is um, is approving what they're doing. He mentions two other individuals in verse twelve, Tripanea and Tryphosa. He also calls them workers in the Lord. He mentions Persis in verse twelve as a worker, somebody who worked hard in the Lord. He mentions Timothy, verse twenty-one. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And then he goes on a little later and he mentions Gaius. Host to me and the whole church greets you. Isn't it interesting? So we've got all these individuals, Phoebe, Priscilla, Achilla, Mary, Andronicus, Junius, Urbanus, Apellus, all of these folks. And he refers to them all as workers. You know, it's interesting because we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're all given gifts and abilities, and it's all for one primarily purpose, isn't it? To serve the church. To be workers in the church. Um, to get saved and stuck, as Earl Rodmacher used to refer to, isn't where it's at. God expects us to get saved and then begin to immediately start to work. Now, some of us don't want to hear that, right? You know, it's time for rest. No, rest comes later. And the early church, again, as you look at it, here they are meeting in these small little local bodies, but they're working. In fact, the book of Acts gives us pretty good indication that to go out and sell some of their belongings so that they might help the other people. But the church thrived on people within it working. What's happened here in the United States? We've sort of flipped that on its head because now... Our model in the United States, and it's been this way for, for generations, is when we pay those guys to do it. I don't know that that's what God actually intended to happen. We run it like a business in many re- respects. And what happens? Influence of the church on the world around us collapses inwards on itself. Churches thrive when Christians look at that and say, I have a responsibility. I've got gifts and abilities. 
to minister to the, the body and to work. Sometimes it'll be as evangelists, sometimes as helpers, sometimes as teachers, sometimes as whatever it is. But we are to work. And so Paul rattles down through this list that the church was filled with workers. How many of you, if you were asked what you do for a living, would first list the job you have or other responsibilities versus your position in Christ and your responsibility as Christ? You know? I'll be real frank. People say, well, what do you do? Well, I'm an IT guy and I'm a pastor. <laughs> Why not? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. That's my first life. That's where I put my time and my energy. Oh, that, that pays the bills. My day job pays the bills for me. But my real role, my real job, is to serve Christ. I think that's the way these people worked. Again, they were selling belongings and everything. Um, many of them put their lives on the line, and they were doing it in very difficult circumstances, facing the persecution in Rome. Remember, the, the persecution in Rome wasn't lifted until literally 250 years, probably, after Paul wrote this letter. So they're doing it at great risk themselves. So they were workers. The church was filled with workers. How about a third observation? That partnership that they had with Paul as workers um, led to a kinship and a fondness between Paul and his readers. And I imagine between the individuals there as well. Look at the way he refers to some of these people. There's just a few of these here. But look at verse 5. He uses a word, the word, my beloved. That's a term of endearment as he's talking to Epinatus. He says, greet Epinatus, my beloved. In verse 7 he says, greet Andronicus and Junius. He calls them my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. Kinsmen there is not a word we use often. Paul generally used it for his Jewish Christian friends. But it refers to this idea that they're like me. They've got this relationship with them. Um, he goes on in verse 9, talks about Stichicus, my beloved. Verse 11, he says, greet Herodian, my kinsman. These are terms of endearment and fondness. And you can see that in this letter as Paul is finishing this letter. Like I said, we've got 24 names in this chapter. Paul had a fondness and an affection for these people. And the fact that he mentions that they were workers, that they were his kinsmen, that they were beloved, that they helped him, they joined him, seems to indicate that it was their partnership in his ministry with him that built this affection and this fondness. Isn't it interesting when we have a mission together that we serve and how that brings us together? And that again, I think, goes to the, the heritage of the church. That's what God actually intended. You know, So when we minister along each other, Side by side, we get engaged in each other's lives. It builds this unity and affection and fondness to one another. It sure beats just showing up on a Sunday morning, performing your ritualistic singing, and then going home. Doesn't it? That's not what God intended. That's what a, that's what a mass is. You show up, you do your duty, and 45 minutes later you leave. But that doesn't build unity. That doesn't build affection or fondness. What builds that affection and fondness is, first off, meeting each other one-on-one in smaller groups so you can feed off one another and learn and to grow and to engage and to understand and to help and to minister, but also seeing that we have a mission together, we come together as a group and we work together as the body of Christ. That builds this kind of affection and fondness that we see Paul had for his own readers. The last thing I want to touch on here, the last observation I want to make, and there's probably others you could see here. So the fourth observation is that 
the early church faced the constant threat of false teaching that would ultimately, in the end, destroy what they had. Nothing can destroy unity within a body faster than false teaching. Many things that can hurt a body, but false teaching does it like nothing else. Verses 17 through 20, I'm going to read these real briefly. Well, you know, we'll hold off on that. I'll, I'll get to them in the text here, but... Paul's letter to the Colossians, the Galatians, the Thessalonians, even to the Corinthians to some degree, and then Jude's letter to the church, all were written to combat false teaching. Think about that. One, two, three, four, five letters at least were written primarily for the purpose to counter false teaching, to warn about false teaching. First and second Timothy were written to equip Timothy to combat false teaching at Ephesus. So we add that. To the list. So here in Rome, Paul writes these words, verse 17. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. You know, what's interesting is oftentimes within the church, when somebody is accused of false teaching, many in the church get it up in arms. You're pointing a finger. You're judging. You're naming names. Um, It's offensive. But that's not at all um, appropriate. Paul comes right out when he's talking to Titus. He says, reject the factious man. That's pretty strong language. Here Paul says, keep your eye on him. Keep your eye on him. Watch him. Pay attention to him. And then he says to turn away from him. Instead, we give him a book deal, sell their book at Lifeway, and let them have their platform. Nobody wants to call out false teaching. Now, in all fairness, Paul also tells Timothy to do it in a way that's gentle, in the hopes that they will, Paul says, come to their senses. So there's a loving, gracious way to do it. I, I have this love-hate relationship, what I call discernment ministries, um, because so many of what we'll call the discernment ministries that have it as their purpose to call out false teaching, do it in a nasty way. You know? I'm not a fan of Rick Warren, okay, because of some of what he teaches. But labeling him as the purpose-driven pope and accusing him of ill motives and other things, I, I can't stomach that, you know? It's one thing to, to address somebody and say, hey, what you're teaching is false. Let's talk about this. Let's work it out. Um, it's very different to start name-calling and pointing fingers. And, and oftentimes that's what happens in some of these discernment ministries. And so there's this love-hate relationship with them because they oftentimes point out stuff that's valid. Many of these discernment ministries point out false teaching in the church. Which is a good thing. But oftentimes the way they do it is a bad thing. And so, like I said, I have this love-hate relationship. But Paul here says, keep your eye on them because they cause dissensions. What they're teaching is contrary to what you learned. So turn away from them. He writes in verse 18, For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They have their own motives here. You can flip through any number of the Christian television channels on TV and you'll see that. You know, everyone with his own ministry and his own following and he's fleecing or she's fleecing the flock. You know, Um, that's why I think so oftentimes so many of these ministries are of the word faith movement, which is, you know, give your seed faith gift, $1,000 to me. If you plant your seed, God's going to send you $2,000 back. That's why so much of that is filled with money. It's about greed. It's about self-appetite. 
Okay? Um, he says in verse 18, By their smooth and flattering speech, they will deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 with me. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter has some of the harshest words for these people as he warns his own readers about the very same thing. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I want to read it because it kind of gives us a sense for what God thinks about these things. So 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1, he says, But false prophets, those are false teachers, also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the ungodly, or the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of those who would live ungodly lives after, and if he rescued righteous Lot, opposed by the sensual conduct of the unprincipled men, for what or for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Again, he's talking in the context of false teachers here. And especially those who indulge the flesh, flesh or its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a um, reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these men, false teachers, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, revile where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam and the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute, from a, um, for a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are the springs, again, these men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. So speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them, again false teachers, not to have known the way of righteousness and having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Do you realize that that's about false teachers? 
22 verses, Peter drops both barrels and goes full tilt on these false teachers. And it's because they destroy people and the church. And so Paul reminds the Romans at the very end of his letter, before he gets to the doxology, the last thing he says to them is, be careful. Watch these people. Pay attention. And then turn away from them. It's critical. I think it's interesting that it's the last thing he has to say to them before he gets into his doxology. He doesn't go into great detail, but gives a warning. I think he trusts the Romans there to make the right decision, to recognize false teaching. So he encourages them to be discerning here. He says, for the report, this is, I think, verse 19. For the report of your obedience has reached us all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good. That's good teaching. Wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. That's false teaching. He goes on and he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Kind of neat. So what have we learned today? Well, again, just from some simple observations, the early church thrived when they met together in small groups. I think that's critical for the church. So whether you're a part of a big church or whether you're a part of a small church like this, if all we do is show up on Sunday mornings, there's consequences for it. When we get together and we meet together in small groups, we encourage one another, we can worship together, we can study together, whatever it is. That's critical to the church. And I think we've seen in the United States here this explosion of megachurch and how that's impacted us. Um, and again, it's not saying big churches are bad, they have their, their place. It's just a lot can be lost when what we want is bigger and better and we forget to realize how God intended for the church to thrive and it's in smaller groups. It's really what he planned. And it's even true today. You know, I know a lot of these bigger churches are trying to have the small groups. I think it's critical. Extremely, extremely important, I think, for us. That's why it's important for us to do the second Fridays or second Saturdays. Um, Those are important to us, I think. They help us to thrive. They help us to get to know one another. You know, so I think, I think that's one, you know, observation that we can make. Another observation is that the church was filled with workers. That's God's intent. You know, um, when we get saved, we're now recruited, if you will, um, into the, into the, the, we'll call it the uh, Jesus Corps, you know, where God gives us gifts and abilities and we're supposed to minister to one another and to serve and to work. And ultimately, the Great Commission is at the forefront of that, which is leading people to Christ and then making disciples. Um, and we all have our part to do in that. We also see here how that ultimately built affection and um, fondness within the body. A healthy church body is one that works together. Not just one that hangs out, but one that works together, that ministers together. I think um, the things that we've sort of done with, with Walker and wrapping our arms around his family, and even now with the Malins, I, I love the fact that we get to be a part of that and to, to help them to realize a dream that they have. And obviously they face the brunt of that themselves and going through that, but for us to be there and to be able to join in and for them to be willing to let us do that, I think is critical to us. Because working is important. And then lastly, be careful of false teaching. That was important too because especially in a day like Paul where a lot of the teaching was by untrained men, etc. That's not a bad thing. Some of the best Bible teachers I've ever met never went to seminary. In fact, it can be almost a rough thing going to seminary sometimes. 